if you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're not going to spend tons of time in Hebrews. In fact, I hope you guys have a pen or a pencil and are ready to take some serious notes because there's, a, there's about 23 slides and probably uh, a few verses on each slide. So this is going to be a lot. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the first two verses for, uh, to you, with you. And then we'll pray and we'll get into the message today. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And Father, we pray that as we talk about your word, that you would build in our heart a faith that your word is here and it's trustworthy. And that, Lord, we would be those that are wanting not just to know information, not wanting to know even, even deep theology, but we're wanting to know you through your word. We pray, Father, that you would use this morning to deepen our faith, to begin to either answer our questions or to provoke the right questions that cause us to go deeper with you. Please, Father, we pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit for your glory and our good, and everyone who agrees says, amen. amen. So, so this is part of our doctrinal statement in connection to one of the groups we're affiliated, which is called the Calvary Global Network. L listen to this and ask yourself, do I believe this? We believe the Bible is the inspired inerrant and authoritative word of God. We believe the Bible is the final authority in every area it addresses for every individual Christian as well as the church collectively. Now, I wonder how many of you guys would go, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And I wonder how many more of you guys would know why. Why do you believe this? I had a girlfriend in high school who used to have a bumper sticker on her car and it said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. She didn't have that kind of accent, but it sounds better than that accent. <laughs> and, and this is what we often get accused of as Christians, people from the outside. And if you're here visiting or you're here still thinking about Christianity, you might look from the outside and go, well, you believe the Bible because you say the Bible is the Bible, is God's word, so you believe it's God's word. And that's what we call circular reasoning. But actually, that's not what's the case. The, the, that's not the case. In fact, uh, about a month ago when we did the first of this four-part series, The God Who Spoke or God Who Speaks, we talked about that the Bible is trustworthy. In fact, I want to kind of give you the four points that are in your handout. I want you to kind of see in this first, uh, this first graphic what's actually going on there. See, this isn't circular reasoning. Circular reasoning is when you start with a premise and you come back to that same premise. So you start with the idea, the Bible is God's word, and then you go, because the Bible is God's word, it says this, and because this is true, it proves that it's God's word. That's circular reasoning. That's not good. That's not logical, at least. What we're talking about here is actually starting with this premise that we talked about last time, which is that the scriptures are trustworthy history. Let me read to you a quote and see what you think about this 
description of a book. Listen. What it was really like, panic, despair, shocking inefficiency, and a dash of heroism. Two lengthy uh, narratives by passengers who had uh, thorough knowledge of the sea and by members of the ship's crew. More thrilling than any fictional account. Anyone want to guess what book that might be? Go to the next slide. It's a book, The Story of the Titanic as Told by Its Survivors, published in 1950, and most of those survivors of the Titanic, did you realize there were survivors of the Titanic? Leonardo Vincio didn't do too well, but the rest of them, you know. Uh, the, 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 those survivors, most of them were still alive when this book was written. And so when we read a book like this that was written in 1950, not read the book, you realize, wow, that was an amazing story. Sounds almost too good to be true or too dramatic to be true. You say, what's that got to do with the Bible? Here's what's got to do with the Bible, specifically the Gospels. The Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in a similar time frame. When Paul writes his epistles, specifically the epistle we're looking at right now, 1 Corinthians, it's in a similar time frame. So that Paul could say, speaking of Christ's resurrection, that many, that some who saw him alive have fallen asleep, or that is, they've died, but many are alive today. In other words, they can make claims that can be proven by eyewitnesses. This is what we mean when we say the believers are a trustworthy history. If you remember some of the points we made a month ago, we, we talked about how it's honestly written, historically verifiable, and progressively preserved. There's something unique about the scripture in that. We have more evidence about this book, this ancient writing, and its accuracy than we do uh, more than any other book. In fact, many other books of antiquity that we seem to think still are historic. So we start from that premise we start from the premise that, that the scriptures are trustworthy history. And I want to put something on you. If you're still wrestling with this, the onus is on you to show why it's not. Because if you believe any history, if you think any history is worthy of our acknowledgement, it should be shaping of how we view the world, then the scripture ought to be top on the list. So we start with this, and then we get to the next point. And the next point is this. Is we do believe that scriptures are trustworthy history, but we also believe that Jesus' resurrection is presented as historical reality. Now, I want to kind of back this up with just three realities from the scripture about Jesus' resurrection. There's more things we could say about Jesus' resurrection from the scripture, but these are three points that are pretty hard to deny. The first is this, that these women discovered an empty tomb. Women who had been following Jesus after he saw he was crucified discovered an empty tomb. Listen to this. In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, it says, And Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is the tomb they buried Jesus in. It was Joseph's tomb. He knew exactly where it was. And Mark tells us specifically that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. They saw where Jesus was buried. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance from the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. In other words, these women who knew where the tomb was, who saw that Jesus had been crucified, they saw where he had been buried, they went back to pay respect and honor to, to do some of the embalming that they would do. And they get there, and what do they find? An empty tomb. 
a stone too heavy for them to roll back, being rolled back, and the tomb being empty. Now, now the, this, is a, this is a fact. If you take anything as history, this is historical fact. They found an empty tomb. Here's also what we know. The disciples had real, real interactions with someone at least at whom they believed was a resurrected Jesus. Remember, they had spent three and a half years with Jesus before his death and resurrection daily with him. Here's what we read in Luke's account, Luke chapter 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they'd saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I. Touch me and see. Notice what he says. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, they showed him, uh, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, I want to come back to that at the end. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And then he gave, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before him. Do you see the length that, 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 the, that Luke shows us to show that Jesus is trying to show his disciples that not only has he risen from the dead, he's not just a ghost. He's not just a spirit. It was a, a real bodily resurrection. Notice as well that the, the apostles at first, they don't know what to make of this. Now, now, this is important because at this point, here's what we have. We have a testimony of women, which in the first century meant next to nothing. And so if you're going to make something up, you're not going to make up a story that says women were the first witnesses of an empty tomb. You're not going to do that. You also have a testimony of men who were scared and unbelieving in a Savior that they proclaimed was resurrected. At first, their idea was, this is weird, this can't be, what's going on? So they couldn't deny what they saw. They couldn't deny the facts, but they were not believing for joy. Again, I want to come back to that at the end. So that's the second fact about historical reality about Jesus' resurrection. One is the scriptures teach that the woman discovered this empty tomb, and two, that the disciples had real interactions with a resurrected Jesus. And of course, these are in every gospel. They're in 1 Corinthians 15. You see this all over the place. But here's another thing. Here's another fact. Resurrection preaching, that is, that the disciples, the first apostles, preached Jesus as bodily risen from the dead. That resurrection preaching, it brought multiple conversions and it brought serious persecution. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of the multitude of conversions from preaching and resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. Peter preaching, saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, this wasn't a debatable thing in that, in that first century. This Jesus, delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, it wasn't an accident he was crucified. He, Peter says, You crucified. That's what he says to this Jewish, Jewish audience. And you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the, pain, the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that would be a good service. The point is though, they preached this. They believed this. They saw 
the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Jesus that they interacted with, this was enough for them to say, this is what we're going to stand, even being bold enough to say, you guys did this. Now remember, what happened to Jesus when Jesus told off the, the religious leaders of his day? He got crucified. So what gives them the boldness to say the same kind of rhetoric with him? Because Jesus was risen from the dead. That's where, he gets the, that's where they get that boldness. They're sure of their own resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead. But also they got serious warning from this and even then persecution for preaching this resurrection. Listen, it says in, verse, in, in Acts chapter 5, it says that they arrested, this, is the, this would be, again, the religious leaders having the apostles arrested and they put them in public prison. Why? Because they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. But also, listen, in chapter 7, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. This is those that were hearing Stephen preach. And Stephen is preaching Jesus through the whole Old Testament narrative. It says, When they heard Stephen preach, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed at him. They cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And they laid witnesses, the, the, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who, of course, we know, becomes Paul. Now again, why is this important? Because what we're seeing is the scriptures show, they demonstrate time and time again that, that their lives were lived on the basis of the resurrection being a historical reality. So we start with, okay, this is trustworthy history. And then we go to, okay, the, history, the trustworthy history tells us that this Jesus has risen from the dead that these disciples saw it, they experienced an empty tomb, they experienced a resurrected Christ, and they preached a resurrected Christ, both with great power and effect, but also for great persecution. Now, when we look at this, and we think about the fact, okay, if this, if this is history, if Jesus really is alive, it changes everything. It validates everything that Jesus ever said and did. I've heard people, you may have heard people say to you, well, yeah, Jesus, you believe in Jesus. Hey, man, come on. We know he was just a magician. And they'll bring up sort of modern-day magicians, uh, magicians, guys who do magic. They bring up these guys and say, look at the tricks they can do. Jesus was just ahead of his time. He could do these tricks. If that would have been the case, and he would have been crucified, we can see, again, from their own accounts, historical accounts, they would have gone on with their business. We read about this in John's Gospel where the, Peter and the, the apostles say, you know, let's go back fishing. We don't know, you know, they'd even known that Jesus rose from the dead, but they're like, we don't know what any of this means. And they went back to their old careers. But Jesus shows up to them time and time again, and it so impacts their life. It so changes their view of everything they're willing to be as bold as you and I can even only dream to be and willing to be persecuted beyond what we can imagine. So we go from there, and it changes everything. Specifically, it changes how we look at who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. And so we go from the resurrection being historical reality to going to Jesus' view of the Scriptures. Remember, the whole point of today is for us to see that we should take God's word seriously. We should take the scripture seriously because Jesus and his apostles took the scripture seriously. Their view, if the Bible is a trustworthy document and if Jesus has risen from the dead, two things that we definitely believe, then we should take Jesus' view of scripture seriously. 
So let's look at this. What's the first thing we, we, we notice about Jesus' view of Scripture? And again, we, we could talk about this, each of these things for hours. In fact, maybe it's important for me to say at this point. Last month's message and this month's message on this topic, I'm trying to boil down an entire semester's worth of bibliology down to two 45-minute things. It's not that easy to do. If you want my notes from Bible college, I'll give you my notes from Bible college. Uh, but I really encourage you to look up some of the, these things uh, from the references we've given you online. If you want some books to read, I can give you some books to read. But I'm trying to give you guys just a basic understanding of this. But let's talk about what Jesus believed about the Scripture. First thing, Jesus treated, treated the Scripture as God's authoritative word. This is how Jesus t- uh, treated the Old Testament Scriptures. All right? When we mean authoritative, here's what we mean. We mean two things. We mean, one, God will do exactly what the Scripture says. That's what we mean. We see that in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Law and the prophets is shorthand for saying the whole Old Testament Scripture. For truly, Jesus says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus believed that God will do exactly what the scripture says. Heaven and earth will fall apart before God finishes all that he's promised he will do. But it also means this. It means that the scriptures can't be wrong. In fact, Jesus says this simple little phrase in John chapter 10, verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. Now, if you were to see the context, and I'd encourage you guys to look these things up in the context, in their context, you see the context of John chapter 10. Jesus is dealing with his religious critics because they're saying, we want to, we're going to kill you because of blasphemy. And he goes, why? What's the, what's the, what work have I done that shows that I'm blaspheming? It's not the works that you do, they said. It's because you make yourself equal with God. And so he quotes the psalm and says, well, even the psalm mentions others of being God besides God. And if you read this thing, you're going, whoa, what's Jesus talking about? This feels weird. What's he saying here? What he's saying here is, he's saying, listen, where is your argument coming from? Because your argument is not coming from Scripture. It's coming from your prejudice and your wrong theology. And so when he quotes the Scripture to them, and obviously Jesus doesn't believe that he's a God. It's really clear He believes that he's God's only begotten son. It's really clear in scripture. He believes that he's God the son. His resurrection proves that. The apostles all believe this. The early church all believe this. But here's the interesting thing. When he's dealing with these guys, rather than just kind of going, well, that's your theological idea. Here's my better theological idea. He says this. He quotes the psalm and then he says these words, the scripture cannot be broken. We we know at least from this, guys, listen, that Jesus was treating the scripture as God's authoritative word, which is why we should too. But secondly, Jesus also saw himself as the central message of scripture. He believed, Jesus believed that the scriptures confirmed that only he, the Old Testament scriptures confirmed that only he, Jesus, can bring us eternal life. Listen to this. Again, dealing with the religious leaders of his day, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
man, you know, if you don't get anything else out of today, I hope you get this. I hope you get that our goal at Servants Church is not just to fill you full of biblical information. It's to introduce you to Jesus and teach you how to, to live and receive the life that he has for you. But also, we, we know that Jesus used the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, to point to the necessity of his death and resurrection. We see over and over again where Jesus would tell his disciples, the Son of Man must be betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, resurrected. Over and over again. But here's the, here's the trippy bit. After Jesus is resurrected, and the disciples don't know what to make of this, there's two of them walking from Jerusalem to this place called Emmaus, about seven and a half miles away. And Jesus, the glorified Jesus, comes and starts walking with them. And as he's walking with these guys, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. But, but, when, but Jesus begins to challenge them. He says, listen, when they're, when they're talking about, we don't know what's going on. We thought he was God's chosen king, the Messiah. But then he's crucified, and now people say he's resurrected. We don't know what this means. Here's what Jesus does. Instead of going, it's me, here's what he does. Listen, it says in verse 26 of Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, again, shorthand for all the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus, when he's trying to prove to his disciples that he is alive, what does he do? Jesus, we've got to have a Bible study. We've got to get into the Word together. Can you see why we take the Bible so seriously? Can you see why we try to unpack it to you Sunday after Sunday? So Jesus saw himself as the central message of Scripture. Now, so far, we've talked about Jesus' view of Scripture, and it really just kind of covers the Old Testament, doesn't it? What about the New Testament? Where do we get this idea that the New Testament is equally inspired? Well, here's where. Here's where it begins, right? Jesus expected that the, the apostles would speak on his behalf. Now, we know that Jesus, when he spoke, he believed he was speaking the Word of God. Just read through the Gospels, man, you'll see that. But Jesus also expected that the apostles would speak on his behalf. In fact, Jesus explicitly says that the Holy Spirit will teach the apostles about Jesus. That Jesus says, you're going to learn more about me via the Holy Spirit. Listen, Jesus says in his, his night before he's crucified in John chapter 16, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now listen to me. Because we often take these verses in John 16 and we apply them to us. The Holy Spirit's one who leads me into all truth. That's not wrong, but that's an application, not an interpretation. The interpretation is this, that Jesus is saying, his apostles, these 12 guys that he invested in, minus Judas, these apostles, he's invested in them and he's going to send his Holy Spirit upon them primarily to be the authority. How do we know this? Listen to this also. He affirms the apostles' authority to represent him in, in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. 
And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So when these dudes on, on religious television try to tell you that you should receive what they say and not, and not uh, confront God's anointed, when ye he, say that, you know it's bogus because it's not them who are God's anointed. It's Jesus who's God's anointed. And though we have the anointing of God's spirit within us to understand the truth, it's the apostles that had the authority to declare what it actually is. Are you guys following me? Jesus expected the apostles to speak on his behalf. We speak what the apostles said. But they speak what God said. Now, we get to the apostles. And in one sense, this is really the second to last link in the chain. So we, we, we believe that the scriptures are historically trustworthy. We believe in the resurrection as an historical reality. We therefore validate and believe Jesus' view on the scriptures. If we're going to follow Jesus, we should have his view on the scriptures. Does that make sense? And then we say, okay, what do we believe about the apostles? If Jesus says the apostles are the ones who are going to speak in his authority, what do we believe about them? Let's see what their view of scripture was. Did the apostles go around and say, do what I say? Sometimes, but let's look at what their view was. First, this, the apostles treated Scripture, just like Jesus, as God's authoritative word. In fact, Peter gives us some really good insight to what we mean by the inspiration or the authority and inspiration of the Scripture, specifically the Old Testament Scriptures. Listen to this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, before I go on with this verse, it's still on the screen, but listen. Earlier in the section, right before the section in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about how he's not making the stuff about Jesus up, that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of his majesty and specifically give testimony to the, the, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is, is instantly glorified in their eyes. But then he says we have something even more sure than just our testimony. We have the more sure prophetic word. We have God's word. See, see, see here's, here's what he says. Listen, notice. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Two important things that Peter's saying here. One is that none of the Old Testament authors thought, I got another good idea. I'm going to write a book of songs called the Psalms. And they'll all be inspired and they'll point forward to the Messiah. No. Often when, when David specifically is writing a psalm, He's, he's not even understanding necessarily that the Holy Spirit's speaking through him prophetically for the future. But he is. Daniel, the great prophet Daniel. When we read Daniel's own account of how he gets this angelic vision for God's plan for the whole history of the world, that he does so, why? He's meditating on what Jeremiah the prophet had already said. He's meditating on what God's already said through his prophet. And he's not trying to reinterpret. He's meditating on that, and then God says, I'm going to give you something even more. My, my point is this. None of these Old Testament authors saw themselves as those who are making stuff up and hoping it's from God. They spoke as they felt God move. This is what he says. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Here's the amazing thing about the scriptures, and this parallels what we know about Jesus, okay? You read the scriptures, and they are incredibly human. They're real. You read the scriptures, and if you're not reading the scriptures, this is pointless. I hope you, you actually, after this, actually read the scriptures, okay? But you read the scriptures, and you see how human they are. If you don't treat them like some kind of weird magic book and trying to get some weird message from God and you just say, okay, I'm going to read this and take it at face value, you see the earthliness, the humanness of the scripture. Real people with real emotions going through real stuff and God intervening in that area at that time. They wrote what they knew, but the Holy Spirit made sure they wrote down what God wanted written down. That's what Peter's point is. And Peter's saying, listen, in the same way that they didn't just kind of say what they thought was supposed to be said, but they said what the Holy Spirit led them to say, what God wanted them to be said, something trustworthy and sure, this is his view. In the same way, we can interpret it and think it means whatever I think it means. No, it means what the author intended it to mean. Because what the author intended to mean is what God intended it to mean. You guys following me? Peter considered Jesus himself, the glorified Christ, as the confirmation that the scriptures came from the Holy Spirit as he moved these different authors. This is important. We're going to come back to that. Just We're going to build on that idea in a minute. But also, we talked about this verse last time, or we started with this verse last time. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Because Paul considers the scriptures that they were the very words that God wanted written. Listen to what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We'll look at that second half next month. But I want you to think about this. I want you to try to, try to say your name without breathing out. You ready? Try to say your name out loud without breathing out. One, two, three. You can't do it. You can only speak on an exhale. So when the Bible says God's breathed out his word, it means God spoke it. Now, we don't believe that God dictated, like God says, okay, Paul, get this down. You know, I, Paul, okay, I, Paul. It's not a dictation mode, okay? But we believe that God is breathing, he's saying, he's inspiring, inspiring. That's what the word literally means what he wants his people to say, what he wants these prophets to say. This is what Peter believed. This is what Paul believed. They treated the scripture as God's authoritative word, God speaking to the personalities and circumstances of these men to make sure we knew how, what God is like and what he wants to do and what he wants for us and what he wants from us. So the apostles treated the scripture as God's authoritative word. But also, listen, the apostles saw Jesus as the central message of Jesus, a central message of scripture, just like Jesus did. All you got to do is read the, any one of Paul's epistles, any one of the 13 letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. All you got to do is read one of those and see Jesus is a central figure in all of those. It's obvious. In fact, he says plainly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, he says, you have heard about him, that's Jesus, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. So, so this tagline we have for Servant Church, it's all about Jesus, we didn't make that up. It's right from the scripture. But also, listen, John, known as the beloved disciple, 
He centers all his teaching about how people have a relationship with God and even how people have a relationship with each other based on Jesus, on the real life Jesus. Listen now he starts his first epistle. John writes, that which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's code for Jesus, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. This is why. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying all that God has wanted to say, going back to what we read in the beginning in Hebrews, right? God spoke it in many ways, through many men, and in these last days he spoke them through Jesus. And John is saying this is the basis for how we have a relationship with God and how we learn to relate to each other. Is there any other relationship that exists between, any other, seriously, any other relationship that exists that's not either you and God or you and someone else? And John taught, John who was the beloved disciple, John who literally laid his head on Jesus' chest, says, this is the basis of our fellowship, Jesus in the center. Who he is and what he's done to give us this fellowship, this oneness with him. So the apostles saw Jesus as a central message of scripture. But also, listen, the apostles saw themselves as speaking God's word. This is a big deal. What did Peter say earlier, right? He says earlier in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter's really clear, no one receives God's word by their own interpretation. It's got to be the Holy Spirit moving them to say what God wants them to say. Well, listen to what, what Paul says. Listen. Paul, we see in 1 Thessalonians how Paul thanks these Gentile Thessalonians that they received his message as God's word, which is interesting. Because they're Gentiles, they're not Jews. They don't even have a kind of cultural predisposition to believe the scriptures. So when Paul preaches the gospel, here's what he says about them. He says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, that's what Paul shares, when you heard it from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I want you to keep that in mind, too. It's at work in you believers. We'll come back to that at the end. In other words, what, what Paul's saying is, when we came and we interpreted the Old Testament scriptures through, listen, through the person and work of Jesus, because that's what the New Testament is, and that's what the apostles did. If you don't believe me, read the book of Acts. That's what they did. You heard that, Thessalonians, and you thought, wow, this is God speaking to us. And Paul says, I'm so thankful that, that from God that you, did, you recognize that because that's exactly what's happening. When the apostles spoke, they were speaking the words of God. Not, not when they went and ordered a pizza. <laughs> not when they were saying, kissing their kids good morning. I'm talking about when they spoke God's word, when they spoke the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they taught the Old Testament scriptures, interpreting them through who Jesus is and what he's done, they were speaking the word of God. When that was written and seen as a word of God, it was kept. 
Interesting, too. Peter acknowledges, listen, Peter himself, the apostle, acknowledges that Paul's writings were Scripture. He says they're hard to understand, but he acknowledges these are equal to Scripture. Listen to this, 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3.16. And Paul does, as Paul does in all his letters, Peter writes, when he speaks to them, uh, speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I find great comfort in this. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, a month, in a month from now, the next time, we're going to talk a little bit about what's called the clarity of scripture. There's another word they use for it, but it's big and it's hard to understand. But there's a, basically the, the doctrine that we believe is the clarity of scripture. It doesn't mean that every part of the scripture is as equally uh, easy to understand as every other part. It, it doesn't mean that. What it means is what we need to know for salvation even a child can know from reading or hearing the scriptures. And what, what Paul's, or Peter's saying here about Paul, he's saying when Paul wrote these things, sometimes they're difficult to understand, but these, he was speaking the words of God. He was writing the words of God. This is how the apostles viewed the scripture. And here's the thing that's really a censure for me. That the apostles didn't, walk around saying, hey, we speak for God, so you do what we say. There was times when they had to use their authority. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians. The apostles put themselves under even what God had said through them. Listen to this. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, he writes this. He says, but even if we, that's me and the other apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul puts himself under the revelation that God gave him. He doesn't say he's over that revelation. He doesn't use that revelation for leverage to get power. He puts himself under what God has said through him. Think about that for a second. Paul didn't just practice what he preached. He repented from his own, under his own preaching. He surrendered under his own preaching. He judged himself under what God had revealed to him. Again, compare that to a lot of religious teachers. Real famous uh, preacher, I don't really want to say his name because I don't really like doing that, but he's a bit kooky, I'll be honest. But this guy, years ago, you might, when I say this, some of you guys might know who I'm talking about. This guy said years ago, so you can find this, it's, 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 it's right there everywhere on the, on the channel. He said, he said, brothers, I want to tell you, God gave me this revelation. God's not just a trinity. That each member of the trinity is a trinity. There's nine of them. This guy's a multimillionaire from his preaching on television. If I said his name, you'd go, oh yeah, I know that guy. Some of you guys go, oh, I like his preaching. Now the thing is, here's his repentance. When he's finally confronted about it over and over and over again, in fact, his nephew, uh, who used to be a part of his ministry, eventually thought this is not of God, and he got out of it. Now his nephew's a solid Bible teaching pastor. You guys know who I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> but but it, it, when he finally got confronted, he finally said, yeah, I've said a lot of things I wish weren't true. Man. But Paul and the apostles didn't do that. They recognized they had an accountability and an authority that was not theirs to handle. It was theirs to distribute. Now, why is this important? Among Christendom, that is all the different traditions throughout church history, there's three main branches. It starts with two main branches, the East and the West. 
in 1056, I think it was, there was what's called the Great Schism, when the Eastern Church broke away from the Western Church. The Western Church is now what we call Catholic. We'll talk about more of that in a second. Eastern Church being like Eastern Orthodoxy. It was, the battle was over authority. The Eastern said every bishop, they had regional bishops, every bishop should have equal authority, though there might be a first among equals. And the Western said, no, 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 the guy in Rome, he's the guy who has the most of the power. He's got more authority than everybody else. That eventually became the Pope. Then what happens is, of course, you have the Dark Ages, which is not pleasant for anybody during that time. And eventually what happens is there are real believers in, in all these churches, by the way. There's real believers in these churches. And what happens is in, in church history is eventually you get to about the 13th century, and it's like God begins to stir some of these people up, and they go, wait a second. Some of the things that the church tells us in the West specifically are really bogus. They don't match up with Scripture. they got to understand, during this time, the only people who could read Scripture were those who knew how to read Latin, or if they're really clever, Greek and Hebrew. So the general person didn't know how to read even their own language, but even if they could, they couldn't get a Bible in their own language. So then what happens is, what happens is some of these men begin to go, you know what, we need to make sure that the people have access, God's people have access to, the, to, to what God says in their own language. And so you have guys like William Tyndale. I don't know if anybody here heard of William Tyndale. Guys like him and other reformers, Martin Luther, who began to get the scriptures out in their own language. And they rediscovered something that they saw in the scriptures that the apostles taught, and they named it something. They named it this, in Latin, sola scriptura. Anybody ever heard that phrase? It means by scriptures alone. And the idea is it's the scripture alone that has the authority. See, this is what, this is, this is what, what we're getting on, okay? This whole issue here that we're talking about is an issue of authority. See, all... All Christian traditions, listen, they all believe that the apostles had a unique authority from Jesus. They all believe that. There's no argument about that among Christians, okay? Here's the issue. What happened after the apostles died? Where did the authority get distributed from? That's the big issue. The Eastern Church and the Western Catholics, they say, well, it went to the church. The church has the authority of the apostles. But actually, that's not what the Scripture teaches that's what the apostles taught. We believe that the apostolic authority, first of all, the apostles probably thought, a lot of the apostles, probably right up to the end of their life, were thinking Jesus is going to come back any time. <laughs> and so we don't need to pass on anything. But the men that they discipled exalted what the apostles said above anything else. And the men that those men discipled exalted what Jesus said and what the apostles said above anything else. And it was only after the church continued to grow in power and influence that people said, well, actually, maybe we have the authority. What started off as a stewardship, like we saw last week, remember that, in 1 Corinthians 4, how Paul says, consider us as stewards of the truth. What started as a stewardship became an issue of power. And even the apostles didn't do that. You see, here's the deal. As Protestants, as those who are a direct result of the Protestant Reformation, we believe it's called sola scriptura, that the apostles passed on their authority through their writings. Are you following me? Now, there's so much more, again, that we could study to understand this. Again, I had a whole <laughs> class, a whole module of this when I was in Bible college, bibliology. And I encourage you, if you want to go deeper, to do more deeper study. But, but this is the thing. There's two things I want to leave you with. 
One is this. This is where the leadership of this church is going. This is the authority. The collection of elders that we have, the six of us who are taking responsibility for God's people together, we are responsible to hold you accountable to this. Do you understand? This is why we teach you this. Because we believe when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you're a disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, then unless we teach you what Jesus says, what his apostles said, you're not going to be liberated. You've got to know what they say. So that's our responsibility, is to keep pointing you back to, to who Jesus is and what he said. But here's the other thing. Some of you have an academic interest in Christianity. Some of you are interested in, in these ideas. You're, you're, some of you struggle to believe unless it has some sort of intellectual credibility. I get that. I really do. But when we do this, we're actually not being clever. We're just being human. We're just being human. Because here's the reality, right? The apostles, who weren't the cleverest of blokes, the apostles, right? They see Jesus risen from the dead, and what did we read? They still didn't believe for joy. They didn't doubt that that was Jesus. They're just like, okay, it's got to be Jesus, but I don't know. What does this mean? They didn't believe for joy. We see often this is the case, that often we can have an intellectual assent to what's true. We can say, I believe, John, that doctrinal statement that you read in the beginning. I believe that's true. You can have that assent, but you don't believe for joy. And every one of us who claim to be Jesus followers have to make a decision about what we believe, about what Jesus said about the scriptures, what the apostles said about the scriptures, about what we're going to believe about the scriptures. We have a choice to make. How many of you guys have heard of Billy Graham? Just a few. Billy Graham, of course, was an American evangelist that was famous. I mean, radically, worldwide famous. Uh, he, he passed away just a couple years ago. There's still a huge evangel uh, evangelistic uh, organization that's, that, that carries his name. One of the people that heads up that, uh, that organization is his grandson, Will, uh, Will Graham. I want to read to you just some excerpts from something that Will wrote, something about Billy Graham's own testimony. Listen. Will Graham writes, Nearly everywhere I go, people stop and to tell me about how entire families and generations were impacted by my grandfather's ministry. It's humbling. What many, many people don't know is that it almost didn't happen. Everything we know of the ministry of Billy Graham from the late 1940s on, the massive stadium events, the evangelical movies, the radio programs, the counseling of presidents and kings hinged on a singular moment in history that took place at the California Retreat Center, a forest home. After wrestling for weeks with doubts, Billy Graham spent 
a great deal of time studying the Bible, he kept seeing the same phrase pop up, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. He obviously read Old King James. And while, his, while my grandfather, Will Graham writes, had always accepted in his head the authority of Scripture, this became the turning point as he realized in his heart that God's Word is divinely, divinely inspired, eternal, and powerful. And one night at Forest Home, he walked out into the woods and he set his Bible on the stump more of an altar than a pulpit. And he cried out, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in which do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical or psychological questions others that are raising about it. And then my grandfather fell to his knees and the Holy Spirit moved in him And he said, Father, I am going to accept this word as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond intellectual questions and doubts. I will believe this to be your inspired word. Because of that moment, by a stump at Forest Home, California, I get to hear stories of lives changed through my grandfather's ministry. Because of that moment, my father and I are invited around the world to share the same hope of Christ that my grandfather preached in Los Angeles and hundreds of other locations, both near and far. That moment not only changed Billy Graham's ministry, it impacted eternity. Now, if I would have read that story first, you would have good reason to go, ah, emotionalism, circular reasoning. But I hope you see that the faith that Billy Graham had was not a faith that chucked aside intellect. It was a faith that was reasonable, but it was a faith that had to be exercised. There's not a single one of you sitting here today that isn't already exercising faith. You already exercise faith in some authority. It might be the collective intelligence of the scientific community. It might be in your own perceptions and in your own research that you, you've done. It might be in what your father or grandfather or grandmother or, grand, uh, or someone else who, who was important to you spoke to you. But you already exercise faith in another person's authority. And what Billy Graham had to do before he could continue in his ministry, was say, can I believe the reasonableness of the authority of the scriptures? And of course he did, and of course it bare bore much fruit. I'm not saying to you that you're going to become like Billy Graham and read the Bible. I doubt that God's going to call any of us to that kind of ministry. But I am going to say this, you will become like Billy Graham in that you will begin to experience the God of the Scripture when you take him at his word. The author of Hebrews again writes this. 
He says, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. You believing that the scripture is God's word does not make it God's word. It doesn't make it God's word. You not believing in the scripture as God's word does not mean it's not God's word. But your faith will determine what you get out of this book. Your faith will determine if you meet the God of scripture or not. What authority are you going to believe? Father, I pray that you would help us to take you at your word. Lord, you've proven yourself to us time and time again. Lord, sometimes what we read in your word makes us so uncomfortable, challenges us, confronts our assumptions, but never is it bad for us. Father, help us to be those who exercise a reasonable faith that your word is, the scriptures are a trustworthy history. That you, Lord Jesus, have historically risen from the dead. You're alive today. And your view of scripture needs to be our view of scripture. And we can trust the apostles that you sent out to speak authoritatively for you. Lord, it's you that we want to know. It's you that we need to believe. We pray you'd help us to do this. While everyone's heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, I just, I'm wondering if there's anyone here this morning that's in a place where they're recognizing they need to believe God's word. They're recognizing that they need to know the God of the word. I want to encourage you right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed to pray to that God. To pray to the God of scripture. And say, Lord, I want to take you at your word. I want to know you in truth. I want to follow you. Jesus said, if anyone wills to do my will, he will know that the Father has sent me. John chapter 7. Do what God says and meet the God who said it. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in what you say. Make us hungry, not just to learn stuff, but to know you and to follow you. Do this in us, we pray. I pray a blessing on all these guys. I pray, Father, that you would keep them and bless them and show your face to them. Be gracious to them, Lord. We need you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen.